Thank you. You can be seated. Well, it is really good to get to be back here with you uh, today. I love this church, and I love Brian and Mandy, and I love um, what y'all are doing here. And just get the relationships that we've developed over um, the past few years have been wonderful. Although, I will say that the name of this sermon is not Telescope. If you are looking at the thing, I just told Brian I wanted a telescope for the sermon, and he named it. The ser- uh, sermon is Telescope. Actually, this name of the sermon is This or That. And I want to talk about decisions um, because I think the two most powerful words in the English language are yes or no. Think about it. Yes or no, they have the power to make or break your life. They have the power to ruin or restore your life. And almost every time you use those words, you are on some level bringing life or death into you. Most decisions ultimately come down to the moment when you say yes or no. They're the most powerful words in the dictionary because yes or no define who you love. They define what you're going to do with your life, how you're going to spend your time. They open new doors and they close old ones. They, they close old plot lines and they open up the possibility for new stories. They're definitive words. They set the trajectory of your life. Yes or no, depend, uh, they're going to determine how many hours a week you spend in the job. They're going to determine what relationships you have. They're going to determine your commitment to the relationships you have. They're going to shape, yet those words, yes or no, are going to shape your character in times of stress. Most decisions come down to two small words. When I was first writing the sermon, I was trying to think, what is the key moments in life that, for me, change with a yes or no? And I thought immediately of um, when I was in Germany once, I had... Leslie and I, we were college students. We had lived in Greece for a semester. And before I went to Greece, I saved up as much as I could. I grew up kind of poor. I was working in construction. And I saved up as much as I could. And then I took out a loan to buy a very cheap ring. It was an estate ring. You know, like I mean, somebody had lived and died with this ring. And then I was going to take it and offer it to a woman I was proposing to. But that's all I could afford. So I bought this ring before we went to Greece. And then... Um, all semester goes on. I know that I'm going to be doing this at the end. We're going to Germany, which is the place she wanted to go on free travel. And as we are getting to Germany, some stuff starts to come out. I had um, planned this engagement so long that a couple months earlier, we had been in Egypt, and I had bought her a necklace. They called it a cartouche, and it's in hieroglyphics. And so my plan was I bought her this necklace and it said in hieroglyphics leslie will you marry me and i had seriously miscalculated how big it was going to be if they put that entire thing on there because i was thinking like a little you know cute charming necklace it was like this like a mr t starter kit that i was giving her so you know like gives her back problems to wear and stuff and anyway so i give it to her and i do a couple of things that are kind of shady like kind of lie because i don't want her to know like this is coming i'm trying to set up this uh, moment but she figures out that i had been lying to her right before um right when we get to germany and so she decides she no longer wants to date a liar and so on the night, I have the ring that's been in a safe in a Harding campus. I have it in my pocket now. And we're walking along the streets of Nuremberg, Germany, and Leslie breaks up with me. And now I'm walking along kind of devastated with her because we got to walk together. We don't know where we're going. And, and then all of a sudden it dawns on me like, what if I just asked her anyway? 
And so I did. Like, I get down on my knees and propose to this woman who had just minutes before said she no longer wanted anything to do with me. And you could see in her eyes, she was kind of thinking, like, maybe he doesn't understand what breaking up means. But that was it, ultimately. And by the way, I would rather, like, go skydiving with an umbrella than do something like that again. But everything hinged on that moment, the moments of silence between me asking a woman who had previously said she wanted to, you know, terminate the relationship and her finally saying, yes, everything hinged in my life on that word, which word of those two she chose. The average person makes 70 decisions a day, 70 times a day. On average, you decide to go here and not there to do this and not that to say yes Or no to something. 70 times a day, you set your life on a certain trajectory and you choose against another trajectory. And over time, those decisions add up. Literally, they add up. The average person, if you make 70 decisions a day, you're making about 20,000 a year. You make a ton with your life. And there's one philosopher, a guy named Albert Camus, who says basically the, the sum of our choices is who we are. You are who you are because you chose to be there. We, we know that. Intuitively, we know that. There's truth to that. Like, the, we have the life that we have because on some level we chose it. And every decision that you make has a direction. It may or may not be right for you to put that on credit. Who knows? But you have certainly chosen the direction of debt. It may or may not be right for you to date him or her. But you have certainly chosen the direction of being emotionally connected to him or her. Like, whatever you choose, it's a direction. If you, um, it, it, we run things often through the get grid of is it right or wrong, and I don't know how helpful that is. Maybe a better question is do you like the direction that it's going to head your life in? Because most of us have a problem with not knowing what to do. Our problem is really deeper than that, though. Our problem is that we don't know what direction we want our lives to head in. And the Bible actually has a profound word for this. The word that the Bible uses for it is deeper than making decisions that are right or wrong. The word the Bible uses for this is to have the ability to choose well, to choose a life in the right kind of direction. And the word the Bible uses for that is wisdom. Now, when most of us think of wisdom, there's a chance you think of like, you know, tracking up a mountain to go see somebody in a monastery to ask them about the meaning of life. Or maybe it's some exotic person from some other country that tells you your fortune and can read your future. But the Bible is filled with books that are called wisdom literature. And it's actually not like that at all. What it's filled with are ordinary examples, sometimes pretty colorful examples, of what it looks like to make a good decision in a certain situation. And they're not like absolute. They're not all, this is what you should do for all times, but they're examples of what a wise person would do if they were in that situation, like in the book of Proverbs. And I I love the book of Proverbs because it's filled with all these practical examples of how you should make, what it would look like to make a wise decision in that moment. How do you handle life's problems? Problems that come at you really fast. How do you deal with difficult people or uncomfortable situations? How do you express your emotions? The Bible has a word for the person who knows how to say yes when to say yes and when to say no. The person who knows how to navigate life's choice as well. And the word for that kind of person is wise. And the Bible is trying to create a group of wise people. People who you don't say it's not your business. 
And, and uh, not for everybody, but for a community of people that you invite to see your blind spots. The Bible is honestly trying to create a group of wise people who help each other learn how to say yes and when to say no, which is important to all of us. Because I think the number one question that people like Brian and I get asked in ministry, and it takes a lot of different forms, is basically this. What's God's will for my life? That comes out a lot of different ways. Underneath it is normally, uh, a, uh, well, that's underneath. The question normally presents itself like, should I marry this person? Should I go to grad school? Should I move to another place and take that job? And while the Bible does not have um, answers to very specific questions like that, for it does have the ability to create the kind of person who can answer those kind of questions. And in order to tell you what we're talking about today, I want to show you a story in the Bible that if you grew up in church, you've heard this story before, but it might bring some light on your own life. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 5. Um, king Solomon, is uh, he's the new king. He's a young king. King David, the great King David, has just died, and he had the kingdom of Israel has been kind of bequeathed to Solomon and Solomon has a very daunting task ahead of him to lead the kingdom of Israel and in order to do that he's going to need to take a nap so in verse 5 of chapter 3 here's how it starts off it says at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream and God said ask for whatever you want me to give you Solomon answered you have shown great kindness to your servant My father, David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my king, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern these great people of yours? So give your servant a discerning heart to distinguish between right and wrong, to know when to say yes and know when to say no, because I'm in over my head. So the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discerning and administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had all been a dream. So God comes to Solomon in this story and he asks an incredibly profound question. The most profound question that we almost never ask ourselves. What do you want? Really? Not what your advertisements are telling you to want. Not what the people who get paid big bucks to like um, manipulate kind of your desires. Not what they say you should want. What do you want? What does a good life look like for you? And furthermore, what do you think God is calling you to? What kind of life? I bet it's full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, um, forbearance, and self-control. I bet it's those kind of things. What kind of life do you want? Because we're not really good at answering that very question. It's a question everybody has to come to terms with. It's the driving force of our life, but we're not very good at answering. And the reason it's so important, the reason God leads with this question to new King Solomon is because if you're not careful, if you're not good at answering that question, you will end up with a life 
that you didn't that you didn't want, but that you chose. You will end up with someone else's life. Um, and, and this story is as close as the Bible gets to a genie in the bottle story, right? Ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Solomon begins by saying, I want wisdom. Actually, he begins by, by the true beginning of wisdom. By acknowledging he doesn't have it. That wisdom comes from someone greater than himself. This is what the Proverbs say, what the wisdom literature says, is the beginning of wisdom. The, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, to recognize, your, to, to be humble, to just realize the reality of how small we actually are. And in order to appreciate this story, you've got to realize King Solomon is a freshly minted king. Everybody's looking at him. This is the most popular, you know, a, a king is going to be when they first start. Everybody's looking to him to like, you know, turn the page in Israel's history. He's a young kid, and he has the humility in this moment to admit, I'm not ready for this. And this story has obviously gotten public. It, it wound up being told enough till it was in the Bible. Solomon realizes he doesn't have what it takes, and so he asks for it. And what probably was not the most encouraging moment for the Israelites around him, they hear their king be like, oh, man, this is really intimidating. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then God gives him wisdom. And this is what wisdom looks like in practice. The very next story in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she laid on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him in the, uh, closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son that I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. And the king said, well, this one says my son is alive and your son is dead. Well, that one says, no, your son is dead and my son is alive. And the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the, for the king. And then he gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. And then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. And when Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. I know this is a very strange, disturbing story, especially to our modern sensibilities. We do not get this. But here's the point. Israel, God has given Solomon wisdom. This is an example of what wisdom looks like in practice. In a yes or no role where Solomon's got to discern like really difficult things, um, he's got to administer justice when it doesn't look like justice is an option. Now, the point of the story is to ask, what would you do in this situation? These two women come to Solomon with a tragedy that has no solution. One of the moms had lost their baby, smothered their baby in the middle of the night, and then she looks over and sees another baby, and she doesn't have any honor. You know, have the, their, With their profession, they don't have any honor, and she does not want to be seen as a curse. She doesn't want to lose the little bit of honor she may have. So she steals another woman, probably a friend's baby, and it gets all the way to the king, and now they can't tell which one is telling the truth? And Solomon is not being a monster here. He's doing the only redemptive thing that can happen, right? 
um, there's a, a guy named John Mulaney, a comedian that I really like, who grew up in Catholic school. And John Mulaney said, when he would hear this story, he would always be like, what? What is going on there? You know, like, this logic is so bad, right? Like, uh, you know what? Um, it, by this logic, if he's walking down the street and he sees someone hurting a child and he's like, hey, you shouldn't do that. Then they're like, oh, you must be the father. No, I just don't like to see children get hurt. Like, that seems to be the logic. But here's actually what's happening. The word in Hebrew for compassion is actually mother's womb. And Solomon knows that what, the one thing that can cut past all the posturing and all the pretending and all the lying is a mother's love. I know we can't relate to this story very much because it, it seems like it's bad logic, but we don't get how tense this moment would have been. Do you realize what the, the mom of the living child is actually doing? She's disagreeing with a brand new king publicly. The king says to do something. She says, nope, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. In fact, let her have the baby. She is in that moment putting her own neck on the line. She's saying, don't harm the kid. And she's also willing to say, you can harm me if that's going to stop this ruling. So what is the point of telling you this very disturbing story? Do you notice how it ends? So all Israel is held in awe by Solomon because Solomon knows how to dispense justice because that's one of the things wisdom does. It knows how to lead to justice. Have you noticed that we are such a foolish society and we also are very concerned about justice? Have you noticed that our justice is very thin and often leads to even more injustice? And one of the reasons this story is in there is because it, and I love this story, because it forces a question on you. What do you do when there's not a right thing to do? What do you do when all the options before you aren't good ones? They're not clear, ethically right or wrong. Um, some of you all have heard uh, the philosophy kind of ethic question about the trolley. And if you haven't done a lot of work with philosophy, then maybe you've seen it in the good place. But basically... It's this uh, um, ethic, ethic question where people are asked, okay, let's say there's five people on a train track and there's a train coming down the um, tracks and it's out of control and the five people are going to get hit by the train. You could pull a lever and divert the train track or the train onto another track, but it would hit one person instead of five. It's called utilitarian ethics. Um, would you pull the lever? Because then you would be culpable for killing one person but you'd also be responsible for saving five. Would you do that? And then if you say yes, there's a lot of variations to that question. Like, would you push someone in front of the train? Like, would you be willing to do it? And, and they actually drill down to like certain kinds of people. Like um, people are more willing to push a, an overweight person onto the train tracks. Like this is what they've discovered about utilitarian ethics. Like, and the question that we're, what do you do in a world like that we live in? What do you do? When you don't know what to do, each one of us, if you haven't lived long enough, you will eventually, you'll get to a place where you don't know what the right thing to do is next. You're going to have to make decisions in life that don't have clear black and white, wrong or right things to them. And closer to home, most of the decisions that we have to make every day aren't so much like this is clearly right and this is clearly wrong. They're a competing set of values. I care about this, but I also care about this. You know, do I want to follow my calling or do I want to live closer to home? Do I want to major in criminal justice or I want to, you know, serve and do ministry in medicine? Or, or do I want to get married and settle down and have family? Or do I want to use my singleness to be radically available to other people and to God? 
These are the kind of questions that we have to answer. And every yes is a no to something else. And every no makes possible a yes to something else. And that's what's different about wisdom. Because we often ask questions about, is this right or is it wrong? But a better question is, do you like the direction that that would lead your life in? Those questions about right or wrong are, are maybe sometimes appropriate, but they're not that helpful. There are a lot of things that are not wrong for you to do, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily right. They are wise and traditionally, this is the mistake we, we do. When we, this is the mistake we make when it comes to how we relate to God, right? Like, the way it plays out is that often we, we're asking questions like, is this wrong? And we want to know, like, where the line is, right? So sexually, we ask, like, how far is too far? Uh, with our money, we ask, like, how much do I really need to give? We point out how it's not a sin for us to date him or to go out with her or to be friends with that person. And you know what we do? We disregard the dozens of other people in our life who are telling us, yeah, it might not be wrong, but I don't, there's something about it that's off. And that's what wisdom starts to do its business on us. Because what those people, and they might not know the language to say it, but the Proverbs does, wisdom literature does, what those people are trying to say is, hey, it seems to me like you may be taking a step in the wrong direction. And it's a step that if you take, it will be easier to take the next step and harder to take the next step or take a step back. That's what people who care about us are actually trying to say. There's a time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is being attacked by religious leaders who don't like that he's spending time with people who they call sinners that, that were living their life poorly. And so Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 7, this brilliant line, he's like, yeah, you guys were really hard, if you could put that up in Luke 7, you guys were really hard on my cousin, John the Baptist, because you said, you know, he, he came neither eating, drinking, eating bread or drinking wine, and you're like, he's a demon. And the Son of Man, me, came eat, not me, not John, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But then Jesus says, wisdom is proved right by all her children. He's talking to people who are saying, hey, you're doing this right, uh, or you're doing this wrong, and we're doing it right. And he says, wisdom is proved right by her children. You know why this is so genius? Because every parent, really everybody knows, what do children do eventually? They grow up, and eventually they bear fruit. Here's what wisdom is. This is the kind of metaphor that Jesus uses for wisdom. Wisdom will let you win the argument, but lose at life. Basically, wisdom, this is what Jesus is saying, time will tell. I loved um, what Brother Tony said in communion, because that was actually a wisdom passage. Paul is a wisdom teacher in Galatians 6, when he says, you reap what you sow. Everybody's farming. Everybody's always planting. That's a wisdom idea. That's a wisdom tradition. Time will tell. And nobody plants lemon lemon trees thinking they're going to get apples, right? Nobody plants cucumbers and then gets a flamingo, right? This 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 is what Paul is saying. God will not be mocked, in other words. A person reaps what they sow, and everybody's planting always. And if you want to know, this is what Jesus is saying when he says wisdom um, is proved right by our children. If you want to know if something is wise, then watch to see the kind of fruit that it bears, which you may be thinking, well, then wait, I got to wait 10 years after making a decision to know whether or not something's wise. Well, yes and no, because there is another way. And that is the way of wisdom. And also the reason my sermon is called telescope today, (laughs) because, um, there's a word in the Christian tradition and in philosophy um, called telos. How many of y'all have ever heard that word, telos? 
It basically means ultimate aim or object. It means like to know what you really, really want. Is it the answer to the question God asked Solomon? What do you really want? More than anything else, what's the ultimate aim or object of your life? Now, I'm no astronomer, but I think the way that this works, this telescope, is that you basically point it at um, the sky and you can see, you know, the Milky Way or somebody sleeping on the back row or something like that. And basically, you can see further ahead than where you currently are. This is why the word telos is so big in the Christian tradition and in wisdom literature. Because what it's saying is, if you were to make the decision that you're thinking about making today, where does it lead? If you were able to zoom in 10, 15, 20 years to look and see where would that decision take you, would you like the direction? Not is it right, not is it wrong, but would you like the path that it puts you on? The book of Proverbs uses the word path over and over again because it's trying to get at this big idea. When you get where you're going, will you like where you've got? That's the question of telos. It's the ultimate aim of your life, to take um, kind of an audit of what direction is your life headed and are you going to like ultimately where you're going? Because... The wisdom is always trying to start with the end. At your deathbed, as you breathe your last of the breath that God gave you in your life, will you be grateful? Will you like the people around you? Will you have people around you? Will the legacy, will the fruit of your life be worthy of the calling God has given for you? This is what wisdom is. To ask yourself the question, if I like the choices I make today, what, what kind of fruit will they? If I make the choices I'm going to make today, well, what kind of fruit will they bear? Because most of the problems we had in life, you didn't stumble into those. They weren't split-second decisions. You slowly stumbled towards them one step at a time. And every one of those regrets, every one of those decisions had a beginning. And it probably wasn't in the heat of the moment. And if you were wise you would have seen where that path was headed. This is the point of Proverbs. Everyone's going somewhere. We're always on a path. And even when you feel like you're just sitting still, you're not. You're actually going somewhere. Life is a journey, and we're always heading somewhere. We are beginning the end of our journey, wise or foolish, and every moment takes us closer there. So that's why the word path appears over and over again in Proverbs. And Proverbs is filled with all kinds of things that it looks like to be on a wise trajectory in life, like how to spend your money, um, how to approach your sexuality, your work, your friendships, love, and parenting, all those things. And one of my favorite Proverbs, I mean, this is just how practical wisdom is. In Proverbs, if you could put this up, in Proverbs chapter 20, uh, if anyone blesses their neighbor loudly in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. How great is that? That is our verse for today, by the way, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's, the, here's what Proverbs knows. There's two kinds of people in the world. There are morning people, and there are people who hate morning people. And I love that this is in the Bible, right? Because the Bible cares about like our, our you know, everyday kind of experiences. You know, God, God thinks this is important enough for you to know. Like, don't be dumb when it comes to doing this kind of stuff. He cares about the nuances in our relationship. God helps us moment by moment down at the level where there are no hard and fast rules because it's not necessarily wrong to yell a blessing at your neighbor, but it is likely you get punched in the face, right? 
And so this is what Proverbs is, is trying to get at. What kind of person should I be? What kind of person should I marry? Or should I marry? What career should I have? How can I endure the suffering that I can't escape? How can I spend my money? And ultimately, what kind of telos do I want my life to have? And then, if, if I was doing a series on Proverbs, I would go through all those things. I just encourage you to read it. Because it's a really powerful book. But ultimately, wisdom has some flaws. Because nobody's really wise enough. At the end of the story of Solomon, he ultimately becomes a fool. In the very next chapter in First Kings, we find our in, in chapter eleven in First Kings, we find out Solomon actually marries a lot of different women from a lot of different pagan countries. In First Kings chapter eleven, verse one through four, it basically gives a description of God saying, "Don't do this." And nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. But look why God says not to do it. Because they will turn your hearts. As in like a change of direction. The reason God says don't do it. Is because ultimately you will not like where it heads. And for the rest of Israel's history. God was exactly right. These people that um, God or that Solomon marries. They're not just you know. It's not like a, just a bad idea. They're people who worship the gods of Molech, who demanded child sacrifice. Ashtoreth, the goddess of earth and lust. And basically, Solomon in this moment has changed directions, not just for himself, but for his entire people. I want you to think of all the decisions you've made up until this point in your life. You probably can't get through all of them just now, but think about it. All the money you've made and spent or saved, all the people you decided to date or not to date. If we're not attending to the direction that those decisions are taking us, we will miss something very powerful. Our lives, there's a good chance we will wind up someplace we never wanted to be. If we're not attending to the direction, we'll wind up in some, a place we never thought we would be. Solomon never sat down one day and said, you know what I'd like? I would really like for my kids to inherit a country that is always at war. I'd love for our country to be torn apart. I'd love for eventually my great-grandkids to get taken into exile and slavery again. That's what I would really like. Adam and Eve never sat down and said, you know what we'd like? We'd like to see one of our boys murder the other. We'd like to see them sent, that, the one that lived get sent off to exile so we'd never see him again. And you never sat down and decided one day, I'd like to be addicted to that. You never sat down and said, I'd like to not have any deep friendships. Or I'd like to find myself trapped in debt. The problem isn't that we wanted a bad life. The problem is that we chose it. One direction at a time. One direction setting choice at a time. But, and this is where wisdom falls short. So, um, Randy Harris is one of my very good friends in Abilene, Texas. And at one point, I was talking to him about wisdom and Proverbs. And he said, that's my Randy Harris impression. (laughs) Jonathan, you know the problem with proverbs i was like well is it is it job's friends you know like you can ultimately blame people who are really hurting because um you know this this must be on you and he said no that's the second problem with proverbs the first problem with proverbs is that it's godless i didn't see that coming he says basically you know because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of god but he said no no that's true but what happens with proverbs often or wisdom is that it can become karma you can just think wisdom means karma. What goes around comes around. That's often true. 
and sometimes not. But Christian wisdom cannot forget Jesus. Do you remember the story Jesus tells to the religious leaders? Another story where there's a father. They're, they're criticizing him again for hanging out with the wrong people. People who have done all the things that the father in Proverbs warns the son not to do. Jesus is hanging out with them. And the religious leaders are criticizing him. And he says, let me tell you a story about a father who has two sons. And one of those sons does all the things that the Proverbs warns you not to do. Um, he, he's bad with money, he's bad with friends, he's bad with his sexuality, and just like the Proverbs warn, it leaves their, his life in ruin, a devastated life that he chose for himself. Ultimately, he's eating food with the pigs, but Jesus does not end the story there. He does, he tells about how after he faces the consequences of the life that he chose for himself, he comes to his senses and turns around. He stays up. (laughs) And while he was still a far way off, as he was coming back to the father, the father saw him and comes running out and throws a party. And you know what? Those choices he made can't get unmade. That money can't get unspent. Those memories can't be unmade. But God throws a party anyway. That's why Jesus tells the story, because the older son is sitting outside, the, or the Pharisees are the older son, they're sitting outside the party and they're sulking. And Jesus is trying to come back to them and say, yeah, wisdom is true. Wisdom is good, but wisdom is not the whole story. The heart of God is that God loves to give you one more chance. Every time. Wisdom, God has wired up this world not because God is mean, God lets you choose your life. God lets you have the life you choose. But when you hit bottom, or sometimes when you get what you want and realize you don't want it, God is always there. It's in Luke that Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, and it's only Luke that tells us one other story. We don't know much about this person, historical character. You know, We don't know much. We don't know his name or anything like that. We just know that he grew up in poverty, in Roman oppression, in Palestine, that he was a thief, that he ultimately turned to a life of terrorism, or at least Rome thought he was a terrorist. And so on one Friday, they stripped him naked and they nailed him to a cross right next to Jesus. And the thief on the cross had the same kind of decision-making power you do. 70 decisions a day for his entire life. And those 70 decisions had ultimately led him to this moment in life. Maybe a lot of those were, you know, forced choices that he didn't have because he didn't have any privilege because he was in an oppressed society. Maybe that's true, probably is. But ultimately, his 70 decisions a day led him to utter ruin and shame. But he got one last decision. And he got that one right. And it was enough. In the final moments of his life, with his last breath, he trusted Jesus. And that was enough. And it's here we find out, for all the people, this is the gospel word. For those of us who have choices ahead of us, wisdom is is a grace to you. But for those of us who are looking back on the dumpster fire that is our life, you need to know... Grace trumps wisdom. 
It does not trump the consequences of your life, as the thief on the cross can attest. But it does trump the ends. Jesus is greater than Solomon. Praise God, grace trumps our choices. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the people that have gathered here um, on this Sunday to celebrate you. Um, the resurrection like we do with people all over the world, remembering that you raised Jesus from the dead. God, may you give us um, great hope and joy as we, um, as we live out the rest of this week. God, would you give us wisdom? Would you help us to attend to the question, where, what direction is our path on? And today as we leave, would you also help us attend to the grace that you have given us for all the times we said no when we should have said yes or said yes when we should have said no. God, will we experience your grace and your love for us um, in our foolishness today as well? And then will we leave changed and wise? In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.